This is Ross Coulthard, and you are listening to That UFO Podcast. I'd like to thank Soundstripe for sponsoring this episode. When I first started the podcast, I cringed listening back and hearing the techno version of the X-Files music that I used to use. Yes, that actually did happen, but as a new podcaster, I didn't really know what I was doing. It's a lot to take in. How do I make sure I don't infringe on copyright? Where do I get good quality tracks? There are a lot of questions. That's why you should take some of the hassle out of your creating, whether it's podcasts, YouTube, TikTok, or Twitch streaming, and use Soundstripe. Soundstripe has a huge library of over 8,000 songs composed by Grammy award-winning artists. All the music is royalty-free, so you don't need to worry about copyright claims against your channel. There's a plan for everyone starting from only $9.99 a month. So, check out Soundstripe today. Use my special link zen.ai forward slash UFO sound to access unlimited royalty-free music for your content and be sure to use my promo code podcast at checkout to save 10% off any subscription plan. Hi everyone and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. My name is Andy and I am delighted to welcome an internationally acclaimed documentary maker who has been creating work on the UFO subject, among others, for over 30 years, making his triumphant return to the podcast, Mr. James Fox. James, welcome back. Thank you so much for your that wonderful intro and I've got the grey hair and wrinkles to prove it. Well, we're going to be talking about greys, potentially, but maybe not that kind. But no, that was a spurious link. Um, Listen, James, let's get right into this, because we were just discussing before I hit record that you're a popular guest, whether you like it or not. And I had a lot of people get in touch with me. So I know already I'm going to disappoint a lot of folks that I can't get to their listener questions. So I want to try and get through as much as we can. And first off, I want to know, how did this entire project come about? I'd like to think you've got hundreds of cases and events in your head that you want to do some kind of work on. What was it that Virginia, Brazil, 1996 was the one that that came to the top? So they say life is what happens when you're busy making other plans, right? I was working on Out of the Blue in the late 90s. I had just finished a documentary called UFOs, 50 Years of Denial, which I sold the Discovery Channel to everyone's amazement because everyone was like, you're crazy to do a, a documentary on UFOs, you know. And uh, I'd, I'd launched this new project out of the blue. And uh, it was probably 1998 or 1999, probably closer to, to 99. I get uh, a, a fellow producer on the show uh, that's going to, co-produced the film with me. His name is uh, Tim Coleman. He used to work at the BBC. He's a very smart guy, highly respectable. And uh, he starts talking about this, oh, we need to look into this UFO crash in Brazil, in Virginia, where this alien survived and they're walking through the town. And I thought, why on earth did I just partner with this dingbat? (laughs) Like, oh no, what have I got myself into? And I dismissed it so quickly. Like, I tell people like, I mean, it, instantaneous, like this is no way that happened and there's no way I'm going to look into it. Fast forward, probably 11 years and it was 2010 or early 2011. And I was going to Brazil. I was invited to Brazil to speak uh, regarding a, uh, at a conference in Peruíbe uh, regarding a film I did called, I know what I saw. And, um, 
a friend of mine who's been quietly helping behind the scenes. He's quite popular in, in, um, in the entertainment industry. His name is Jeff Sagansky. And Jeff says, oh, my God, you're going to Brazil. You got to look into the Virginia case. And I was like, oh, God, you mean that case where the UFO, you know. And uh, I said, sure, Jeff, I'll look into it for you. Click. No intentions of looking into it. I got to Brazil. I arrived at this conference. I gave a presentation regarding my film and this effort that I did in 2007 with Leslie Kane at the National Press Club, which I made a movie about, blah, blah, blah. And at that conference, I met a couple of witnesses and a couple of researchers regarding this alleged UFO crash in Virginia. And reluctantly, I listened and I thought, hmm, maybe there's more to this than I, than I thought. And so that was when the plea, the, 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 sorry, the seed was, was, was kind of planted. And then subsequently, I'd been, I'd been there four times, uh, roughly a month each time, uh, starting in uh, late 2011 or early 2012. And um, here we are all these years later with Moment of Contact. And now, of course, I'm thoroughly convinced that it did happen. And uh, uh, it's one of the most significant events, in my opinion, uh, since Roswell. Now, what I'm not going to do here is do a full walkthrough of the documentary piece by piece, scene by scene, because one, you've went to a lot of effort to make this over the course of many years, and we want people to go out and get a copy of it, which they should. And I've also just done a full review. If people want that kind of walkthrough, they can listen to that. However, there are a few parts of it I want to, to bring up and, and chat with you about. Right at the beginning, we see a piece of information that on screen NORAD had alerted the Brazilians in 1996 of a UFO entering their space. For me, that seems something like that comes up and then isn't really touched on again. Was there something more to that? Or was there any more you can go into and explain about the background of that? Well, I debated putting that in because it came from a Brazilian UFO researcher who'd written a book we were in touch with. And he was not willing, he was very credible. It was a good source. And he was not willing to reveal said source but I uh, sent it out to a couple of my contacts within the government and the U.S. government intelligence agencies. And I sent an early copy out and I said, does this seem accurate? And uh, we can't get the source. The guy that wrote the book on it that mentioned this uh, is, was unwilling to give, reveal his source. But he was a credible researcher. He was a respected researcher. And we trusted that he did have a source, but I did due diligence in the sense that I sent it out to a few people in the intelligence in the United States, and they didn't have a problem with it at all. So, um, in fact, they even talked somewhat about about a little bit about the case, which kind of surprised me. Um, some of the the the, the aspects of, of the beans, the, their smell, and that sort of thing. So uh, we we opted to to keep it in, and the Americans were involved. We mm. we, we you know, every military, even civilian witness that we spoke to had contact with, with Americans from, from some unknown government agency. At times, they said it was NASA, but nobody really knew. So what's really interesting then, and I'm going to bring this up several times, is even though this event happened 26 years ago now, um, it's still giving more. And that would then suggest to me that there could be information or data that if you were a member of Congress or someone within the United States government with a big interest in UFOs, they might be watching a documentary that's based on a case 26 years ago, but there's a chance that they could go and pull up real data that was recorded potentially by, by NORAD at the time. 
that may indicate something did enter the atmosphere or come from wherever. Do you think that would be correct? I uh, recently reached out to John Greenwald, who's got his PhD in FOIA requests. He does, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm, uh, I'm going to see if I can partner with him on our efforts to find out what happened. We just don't know what happened once the, according to the Brazilian military and civilian witnesses, once the plane that flew in from the United States, the United States Air Force, left this place called Campinas, uh, Espesex military base, uh, where it went or what happened to the, the debris or, or alleged bodies. We just, we don't know. But that's something I'm definitely digging into and I'm digging into uh, as of like next week. You know, two things. One, that's a great team up, but also you are now killing me having to one pronounce Virginia correctly and you've brought up the name Campinas as well. So <laughs> that's that's hard with a Scottish accent. So apologies, <laughs> folks, if I get any of those wrong, okay? I'm doing my best. Um, <laughs> We go to one of the most striking moments of the film for me was uh, we see the three sisters, Valkyra, Liliani, and Katya, who yes. were, were teenagers, I think 14, 16, and 21. Two, sorry, two sisters are Valkyria, 14 yep. at the time, and Liliani, 16 at the time, and their friend, Katya, 21 okay. at the time. Yeah, so they saw what they believed to be the the being who was alive, um, their testimony is fascinating. I think you get a real sense of the honesty in their voice. There's no smirking. There's no laughter. They're talking about a pretty traumatic event for them. Um, and what they're describing is a very real event that they witnessed. And, and you mentioned on your Reddit AMA, which I suggest folks go and check out Reddit to, to see that, that the being's fear, when described to you, pained you. Now, a little bit long-winded, but in the review of the podcast, I brought up that a listener who, um, her name's Susie Russell, wanted me to discuss with you, she feels there can be a real lack of empathy portrayed by anyone who makes anything like this towards the beings. And it was interesting to see you talk about that, that pained you. Do you think with you've got to be you've got to be sympathetic to the plight of what are being stranded on an alien, not alien planet necessarily, that makes an assumption, but an alien environment, somewhere they're not supposed to be, they are terrified. And how do you reflect on how beings are portrayed in, in moment of contact, but then in wider UFO documentaries as well? Well, you know, I've investigated cases from around the world. Um, it reminds me of an interview I did with Parvis Jafari, who was an Iranian Air, Air Force pilot who had a very dramatic encounter over Tehran, Iran in 1976 in an F-4 Phantom jet. And he uh, had sort of this cat and mouse with this UFO. And he, he finally was able to kind of get a lock on this thing and he was going to shoot it. And um, his controls froze up. He started spiraling out of the sky. He said he was a second or two away from ejecting. Um, and later, reflecting back on that moment, he said his biggest regret, he said all this on camera, was that he didn't try to make peaceful contact. Why did I just shoot first, ask questions later? And that kind of disturbs me as a fellow citizen of the earth, <laughs> that we take this hostile uh, approach, uh, position towards anything unknown in our atmosphere or on the ground. And um, so that's kind of why I, I felt sorry for 
the position, according to the eyewitness accounts of the civilians, these beings, creatures, whatever you want to call them, were scared. They were feeble, vulnerable, and uh, and and wanting help, according to them. And that you, you can't help but feel feel sad. I mean, imagine if it were true, and I'm convinced it is. But if, if, it, if it were true, and you were in their shoes, how how you would feel uh, if you were being hunted down and, and shot at? Of all the the witnesses you spoke to, and there's a great deal of testimony, very emotive, powerful testimony and and moment of contact. It's what the the strength of the documentary is. What was the most powerful for you to be to be there in place, speaking to the witness? What really stood out? Military X, for me. Why? Because I got to look him in the eyes. I got to see the documentation. I'd known that he was a witness for some time. Uh, it's known that he, he was a witness since 1996, uh, people in, uh, all the researchers and, and, uh, civilian people have been trying to get him to come forward. It was just a stroke of luck, right place, right time, very narrow window. I got to look him in the eyes and feel the, um, the emotions and see the emotions of of how this uh, mission that he was involved with has affected his life and how, you know, we always think of, wow, that level of validation, that level of, of uh, confirmation about these cases, wouldn't that be the best thing ever for us, you know, the researchers and those of us who have interest in this phenomenon. But quite honestly, this nearly destroyed his life. And it's still to this day, he's looking over his shoulder. He's paranoid. He gets calls from the military. Uh, and just imagining that this this man drove this creature around, hmm. you know, picked it up at Humanitas Hospital, took it to as a military as a military base, and then and then place Espesex in, in Campinas, and then ultimately the Americans coming in and taking this 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 these beings away. Um, I don't know. There was something about hearing his testimony that just made a really profound impression on both myself and my partner, Marco Leal. That's really interesting. I think most of the comments I've seen online tend to say Carlos, mm. when, he's just, when he goes to the scene and you physically see him cry and break down and drop to his knees and, you know, it was here, it was here. That was a very powerful moment, very raw. Um, so, yeah, interesting, though, because you get that face-to-face. Does that always... Do those moments always translate for you as a director when you're trying to get those across on camera, how it feels in the moment to to how it's going to come across to someone watching? You know, there wasn't a staged event in this documentary. It all unraveled the way it happened. And I remember my my DP, um, our DP, uh, David West, and he was constantly like, slow down, wait, I got to... <laughs> We, got, we don't have a movie if we don't capture this. I was like, Dave, I can't hold back. Things are happening in real time. And, you, you know, everybody's running. And, and uh, but I felt that that moment, particularly because we were there for quite some time. It had been 26 years since Carlos de Souza had been to the crash site. And we were there for well over two hours, thinking at some point, at one point, that we were not going to find it. We just simply couldn't find that location. And uh, so when we when we ultimately when we did, um, it was quite a dramatic moment. Don't get me wrong. I mean, the 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 girls coming within um, eight to ten feet in broad daylight, three eyewitness accounts of this 
alive being, this creature that was sentiment, sentient being that um, had feelings and emotions. And uh, that was very profound. My God. Something about the military guy that uh, that saw this thing and drove it around. I don't know. That really struck a chord with me. And during all my, you know, 30 years of research, I, I've never heard any testimony like it. What I liked about it, and I think I noticed about 20, 25 minutes in, was the lack of CGI recreations. I think those can really take away from a documentary, and I appreciate that you work to a budget and even the biggest budgets can have ropey looking CGI, you know, Marvel in the last couple of years have proved that, that even the biggest budgets can, can really take you out of the moment. And you chose to go with some, some artist impressions for, you know, when you're looking at the, looking at the expanse of the grass and the hills and here's where the military were. And here's apparently what happened with Carlos, Carlos and describing the movement of the craft instead of you having some ropey cigar shaped, you know, CGI object flying across, he uses a log and just yeah. holds it up and shows you. Um, and I <laughs> like that. First person, you're the first person to notice that. But I felt that it cheapens everything. A and B, it's a huge budget, which we didn't have anyway. And it, it cheapens everything. And what I do is that illustrator was the same illustrator in 1996 that did the illustrations according to the eyewitness testimony and provided it to the news organizations in Brazil. He's a Brazilian guy. And we used him to do the same thing. And I cut myself out. What I'll do is I put the illustrator directly in touch with the with the with the witnesses, mm-hmm. the alleged witnesses, and let them work it out and cut me out of the process because that's the way you get a more accurate depiction of 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 what they saw. Yeah, no, I like that. So was that a conscious decision? No CGI, oh, no, oh, no God, cheap absolutely. graphics. Absolutely. No, I, I like that, and I, I appreciated that. And I get that's not to everyone's taste, but I think it really can take you out of the moment. I think when something is so testimony-based as well, you've got to either go all in, which is probably to the tunes of millions of dollars, and even yeah. then you're not sure of the end product. Or like I say, I love the fact that Carlos with a log, because you can see that. You can visualize it in your own head what that was going to be like, and it, it takes you back to that moment. Um Marco Sherezi, you mentioned, is the officer who allegedly apprehended the the being after it ran out in front of his patrol car. Um, he later died from from a strange disease, believed to have been coming from in contact with the being. Um, there was talk of a strange, oily, greasy-like substance on its skin, um, an awful smell of, of sulfur, ammonia. They, they weren't entirely sure exactly what it was, but that was how it was described. And I just wonder, in conversations over the years that you've had with individuals, whether it be in government sources or witnesses, how often do you hear about individuals dying after coming into contact with a being or a craft? Never. Was this the first? Absolutely. I'd never heard anything like it. Yeah, never heard anything like it. Look, how many cases can you think of where you've got an alleged UFO crash, the beans survive, they're walking through a town in broad broad daylight, you get the military that blocks off large swaths of the town, threatens the media with jail if they ask any more questions, threaten the civilians who are just trying to walk to get home in broad daylight, right? This is not like the middle of the night. This was like three o'clock in the afternoon. You know, then you get these, you know, firsthand eyewitness accounts of these alien looking creatures, basically. I mean, uh, I, 
I've never heard anything like it. I mean, Roswell, I guess, I mean, it happened in the middle of the desert. This place, this happened like on the outskirts of a fairly large city, you mm-hmm. know, and then the, the, the encounters occurred in the city of Virginia. Um, I've never heard anything like it. I'd never heard anything like it. And then, you know, and you've got, and look, we went, we went to the, the downtown square of Virginia, Brazil, and put up signs for an hour and a half, two hours. And we couldn't believe how many people were coming forward that had a small piece of the puzzle. Oh, my cousin saw this, or I saw this UFO that looks like it was looking for something, or we saw the military blockade, we saw this, you know, it just all these pieces of the puzzle. And you put it all together, and you have what cannot be, I mean, I can't imagine anything else other than a UFO crashed, some beings survived, and were captured in the town of Virginia, Brazil in January of 1996. Now, let, let me ask, because I mentioned this on the review, that the the very short moments we see of you standing with the signs, which I love, the, again, just that kind of cheap and nasty, but it gets it's effective. <laughs> where you're basically on the street corners, as bad as this might sound, if you've not seen it yet, you know, soliciting for, for UFO for UFO news. I'm just curious. I was yeah. taking the temperature of the town. We had interviews already lined up. But I wanted to know what the what the locals thought. What what was the ratio like? Because what I said was, uh, and obviously you've got seconds to put into the actual final product. The the few kind of vox pops or, or, or moments that you used were all very positive and about the case. What was the ratio of people actually approaching you who had heard or wanted to talk about it to to those who maybe came up and said, "No, nothing happened. Don't, don't believe it." I can't think of anyone that didn't believe it. I think the least we got was, I think it's possible. Um, but for the most part, they everyone believed that something truly inexplicable took place. What exactly that was, they didn't know. But there were too many stories swirling around about the military presence. People were like, look, man, the military doesn't, military trucks don't drive through and do blockades in this town. It's never happened before. It's never happened since. Clearly, something extraordinary took place. Um, I would say 20 to 30% of the people that we spoke with uh, had some indirect piece of information, direct or in, indirect piece of, of, of fascinating uh, you know, uh, information. And let me be fair to the the skeptical who might be listening to this, you know, with that kind of raised raised eyebrow. I'm from Scotland, as people can probably tell by this point, and Loch Ness is famous for Nessie, you know, Loch Ness monster, stunning area. It's beautiful. If anyone ever gets a chance to travel there, it's worth it, just for the views alone. But that that area makes a healthy amount of money from tourism. What would you say to someone who says to you, "Well, the the residents of Virginia are." Or maybe milking what may have happened for that kind of tourist dollar that may come in? Well, they've never had a museum. I think the museum is going to open for the first time uh, in, in the next month or two. And, uh, you know, I mean, look at Roswell. I mean, Roswell happened. And of course, they're going to, you know, advertise the fact that it happened. I mean, why wouldn't they? Yeah. Um, they've certainly embraced the story, they're not hiding from it. Um, I mean, it's either that or just complete denial. I mean, I don't know. I I probably want people to come to my town too. I hard to say, but I mean, I can't. I don't blame them. I didn't see a lot of promotion of, you know. Certainly, when I was in Brazil, 
In fact, most of the people, the Brazilians prior to this film coming out were somewhat skeptical. I think the military did a pretty good job of shutting this whole thing down. Hmm. Um, yeah, it's hard, it's hard to say. Look, I know how unbelievable this story is. I'd be the first one to tell you that I didn't believe it either. And I was making a documentary on UFOs when it happened, uh, you know, well, my first one. And I was making my second film when I'd heard about it. And, uh, and I just had a really hard time imagining that something of that magnitude could occur and the whole world not know about it. So this, to the skeptics out there, I say, I hear you loud and clear. I don't blame you one bit. All I say is listen to the eyewitness testimony in the town of Virginia. Listen to the military. Listen to the civilians. Listen to the doctors um, and those reports and then draw your own conclusions. What was the most difficult thing in, in filming this particular documentary? Convincing witnesses to come forward. Very, very difficult. M years. Years. But some of the doctors, years. Cesario, the x-ray technician. X-ray technician, I think, was eight years. Marco Leal was going by his place, constantly met him, at the, and then he retired, and then he, it still took several years after he retired. And after he went on the record... Of course, he had his back filmed. He wouldn't want his face, and we had to disguise his voice. It was either that or we weren't going to get him. Um, he said how relieved he felt, like a weight off his shoulders. Um, but it, it, how fearful the witnesses were 26 years later. That's what was so difficult about it. I, and I kept thinking, my God, it's been 26 years. What the hell are these guys worried about? But they were. You know, and and um, and the, and the, the the people that were threatened at the time were done so in a weird way. It wasn't like, hey, we're gonna, you know, you talk about this, we're gonna kill your whole family. It was more eerie kind of than that. It was like uh, the consequences of violating your security oath or something would be extremely severe, or things are gonna. If you talk about this, things are gonna get really weird for you. Uh, you know, those types of of threats. Um, don't talk about this at all. Don't mention us being here. We never came. You never saw anything. That kind of stuff. Anyway, yeah, very strange. I mean, the whole thing is just, it's a crazy story. I mean, look, I've been investigating UFO reports, incidences for the better part of 30 years. I've never heard anything like it. And the nice thing about this case is that it's recent enough where the vast majority of eyewitnesses are still alive. It was 1996. I'm glad you used that as your example of what was difficult the the kind of the 26 years and why they're still fearful about talking something and it's not blasé it wasn't just yeah this happened it was still emotive it was still fearful I talked about the the ghettos from before you talk about you know military X you talk about Carlos de Souza breaking down 26 years after you know what is visiting a, a piece of grass out in the middle of a of the hills but it's truly something that's left a mark on him and I wonder. And it's very strange to say this. Is Moment of Contact's legacy going to be what comes afterwards? Yes. Because it seems no it's no very it's very rare that the hype seems to have started after the release, which I'm sure is fantastic if you're a distributor or looking to try and make some of that money back. But this wasn't something that was hyped beforehand, James, in the way. And now there seems to have been a reaction afterwards and a bit of a snowball effect. Yeah. Um I knew that I made a calculated decision with the distributor because we were waiting for some additional evidence to surface that we've got a very solid lead on. And uh, I said, look, you know, the film's, the film's done. 
uh, it's not about the film at this point. It's about encouraging other eyewitness testimony to come forward. Um, and let's put the film out and, and cross our fingers that this, this does start a movement of further transparency and further cooperation, um, both in Brazil and the United States. And that seems to be what's happening right now. Did you know that podcast advertising is way more effective than display advertising? With 67% of listeners remembering brands and 63% making a purchase after hearing them. Whether you want to diversify your ad spend, add a new marketing stream, or test out podcast ads, Zencaster's creator network makes it easy for brands to connect with podcasters. Zencaster's mission is to make podcast advertisements as easy and accessible to business owners as Google or Facebook. Post-read ads like this are the most effective form of podcast advertising. Zencaster works with podcasters to help create unique to them ad spots that create brand awareness and conversion. Zencaster's Creator Network is the perfect place for you to get into podcast ads and sponsor your favourite creators like me. I've worked with Zencaster now for some time and they truly put the content creators and the listeners at the heart of what they do. As a huge fan of podcasts myself, and I really mean that, I love podcasts, I often buy products or services that I find useful to me based on those pods that I'm listening to. It supports them and there's usually a good discount to go along with it. So if you're interested in sponsoring this show or another podcast with adverts for your business, go to zen.ai forward slash that UFO pod one that's the number one, or click the link in the description and fill out the contact information so Zencaster can help you bring your business story to life. And is that f- further evidence we have to talk about the video, obviously, because I hate to say, you know, my sources say, and I never do it, but I, I've spoken to Brazilian researchers in the last couple of days who tell me that video is out there, that video has been has been seen by people, and it's it's going to come out. And you've said yourself, again, on your Reddit AMA, on your Twitter, you know, very soon we're going to see stuff coming out. Now, you've you've said yourself a financial stake of $200,000, which I addressed this on the review as well, that someone said that wasn't a lot of money for evidence. And I said I would suggest that that James's family would say that's a lot of money. And James himself would say $200,000 is a lot of cash to part with. Um, $200,000 is a lot in the United States. And it's five times that in Brazil. Well, there are people I don't even think would, would think about that. So that's a really good point. That video, you must have a lot of faith and due diligence that that's going to come out. What sort of impact could this have on, one, the release, but two, the wider UFO subject? I, I was contacted by um, a, uh, a pretty prominent uh, news organization, I think it was it was probably yesterday, and um, they cautioned me on because all I'm thinking, quite honestly, is I just want to get my hands on it. I've spoken to two people, uh, two people who've seen the videotaped evidence, and one person that's personally me personally, okay, and one person that's seen, and I absolutely believe them. They did not come to me; we came to them. We hunted them down, and we spent years, years doing it. Especially Marco Leao's had boots on the ground for you know fifteen to seventeen years. Um, uh, this news organization contacted me and said, "Look, you know, if you guys do manage to get your hands on it, you need to strategize on how how you're going to release it to the world. Don't just put it on, you know, YouTube. It needs to be strategic." You need to have a news organization behind you that can do due diligence, contact the um, 
the source. Uh, and so I, I promised that, that organization that, that we would do that and we would be um, strategic on how, we, on how we did it. I mean, ultimately, I would probably, because I'd be borrowing the money. I have a guy who's poised to lend it to me. Um, and so I might maybe uh, make a director's cut and, and re-release the film. And and also have a news organization reporting on it, probably. But again, it, that, that that decision has yet yet to been made. Right now, we're just focusing on getting our hands on it. Well, like I say, it's it's almost like the what comes next could almost make the 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 documentary the interlude to this evidence because it suddenly becomes something that that the general public who haven't seen Moment of Contact or maybe don't have that interest in the UFO subject potentially seeing this 35 second video on whichever news organization or youtube or tiktok channel wants to go with it then all of a sudden moment of contact becomes the the context behind this video piece doesn't it that people will have to go and watch that and it's almost like you've created the folder and file for that little piece of evidence at the end which is like i say it's really interesting the the kind of reverse impact this is having which is which is really cool to see on that i'd love to know that if members of congress asked you to to brief them in a classified setting on on moment of contact is there any information that you would or could share with them that wasn't included in the final presentation that you feel would be important um so uh there were hearings congressional hearings for the first time in what is it 50 60 years uh 50 plus years and and during that time a few people from the inside asked me where the film was in its current state and could we make a couple of um, screeners, even if it's rough, for certain members. And I said, excuse me, um, I said yes, and I did. And apparently it made quite a splash. I'm in touch with some of those people now. It's uh, it's kind of a tall order for any elected official at this point to start commenting on you know, an alleged, you know, UFO crash and live beans. I mean, that's just a, it's one of those cases where you have to say extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. But I can assure you that that this case is on their minds and and having an influence in the decision-making process uh, and certainly a push for additional, look, we want to know where it is and who has the authority to release it. I mean, that's the bottom line, right? Um, we're pretty sure that it's there. Um, We'd like to be more sure, but uh, but this is certainly the impetus, uh, which is encouraging both civilian and military and government officials to to dig a little deeper. And do you think with that U.S. involvement in this case that is very well known, there would be people within the U.S. government now who have even more of an interest in potentially following up those leads as to where beings may have gone, where bodies may have gone, where Definitely. materials may have gone? Definitely. Definitely. Look, I would love uh, if there's anyone in the U.S. military uh, that was involved in this case, uh, please come. I would love them to come forward. I would love Congress to make an announcement that they're going to provide, you know, uh, a blanket kind of uh, what is it? Not anonymity. um, Immunity. Immunity from any kind of prosecution for disclosing these kind of secrets. Um, I would love to see that happen. And I think that if that did happen, it would be much more likely that we would get, uh, you know, American witnesses uh, to come forward. 
it's funny do you know what if that would be wonderful for you if you suddenly had access to a whole load of talking heads uh, to come on front of camera and speak about various different things and what i found in reflection and moment of contact i would love to see this as a type of netflix series and i'm sure you would love netflix to come to you and offer you a ton of cash to make this kind of stuff but i would love to see virginia and other cases lined up next to each other in that 70 80 90 minute format with a big budget and you going out and finding witnesses from all around the world and i would ask what if that did happen what would the next in the series be that would naturally follow on from virginia for you i think that i would ultimately have a lot more control maintaining my independent my independence as i am now and licensing the end product directly to a platform like netflix because once the executives step in, they seem to know best on, on how these things are done. And I had that problem with The Phenomenon, mm. my, my film, The Phenomenon. And, uh, you know, there were Netflix almost bought it. And in fact, we, we couldn't sell it to them because my distributor had accidentally uh, sold non-exclusive broadcast rights, rights to Discovery Channel. And as a result... Netflix, Netflix could not have an, exclu an exclusive, which is what they want. Okay. And, um, but I remember when we were in talks of edits, they were saying, oh yeah, let's give a counter argument to what the girls saw in Rua Zimbabwe, what the children saw in Rua Zimbabwe. Yeah. I was like, well, first of all, I'm not really saying what they saw. They're saying what they saw and we're not concluding anything. So why would I do a counter argument to an argument that I haven't even made? All, yeah. I'm, all I'm doing is providing a neutral platform. So I remember thinking their exposure is great, but it comes at a price. And these executives don't really have a clue what's going on in terms of the, the phenomenon. And so I'm inclined to maintain a very independent platform such as my own, which is I've been doing for nearly 30 years and, uh, and, 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 and going after it. And what I'm inclined to do next is to walk the halls of Congress um, and uh, determine what is now known within these government agencies, the old task force, uh, and where this evidence that we've all heard about, it's been confirmed to me by the former Senate Majority Leader, who was third in, second in line to be president, uh, Senator Harry Reid, was at the house, sorry. But anyway, one of the most powerful men in Washington at the time, and that's Senator Harry Reid, who was the Senate Majority Leader, that uh, that what's been released is only the tip of the iceberg. Now, just before we get to some listener questions, James, I, I want to sort of steal the end part talking about a different type of footage because we're going to go back to moment of contact in a second but right. something else you're sort of synonymous with is talking about the chuck clark footage and for those aren't aware and i'm going to probably bastardize this um actually do you mind very quickly james talking about what the chuck clark footage is in your own words because you'll describe it better than i will how much time do i have uh <laughs> try and surmise it so we can get to listen to our questions but it's, okay. it's fascinating and this is it was actually the first time i ever heard you speak was uh on howard hughes unexplained years ago talking about this piece of footage and i was just like fascinated well so i'll quickly say i was doing my first documentary on ufos 50 years of denial i covered uh, uh, area 51 was very popular at the time it was the early 90s, 93, 94, mid 90s, 95. 
And I was interviewing a gentleman named Chuck Clark, who had a, a, a double wide. He was an amateur astronomer, former military guy. He had a trailer, a nice, very nice trailer that was uh, that was parked in um, Rachel, Nevada, which is that little town where the Alien Inn is on, on, on the extraterrestrial highway just outside the alleged, you know, the so-called Area 51. And uh, I was interviewing him about a sighting that he'd had, and it was quite fascinating. Um, and so I was kind of going back and forth with him over, a, I, I don't know, a year, year and a half, whatever it was during production, becoming friends. And he was knew all these different vantage points that you could hike up to and look down at the base. I think all those vantage points are, are gone now. And um, one day he called me and, he, and I'll, I'll give me one minute. He called me out of the blue and he said, uh, hey, hey, James, I got something to I got I got something to show you. And I was like, well what's going on, Chuck? He goes, well, I was like, what is it? You know, he goes, and I was 10, 11 hours away from, from, from him by car. And, uh, he says, uh, well, let's put it this way. When you see it, your jaw's going to hit the floor. I said, I'm on my way. I canceled all my things, jumped in my car, drove straight out to, uh, Rachel, Nevada, went into his trailer, popped this VHS tape in. And, uh, there are two guys on a, road trip from like Los Angeles to the little alien. Cause remember area 51 was very popular. Bob Lazard come out a couple of years earlier, yada, yada, yada. And, uh, they were just like goofing off, had music in the car, looked at the extraterrestrial road sign, went to the little alien. They're posing next to the aliens, the photographs, blah, blah, blah. Just the typical road trip. You'd expect a couple of youngsters to do during that time, you know, and then all of a sudden the car's parked. The camera looks like it's kind of like cockeyed sitting on the armrest. And you could see like the dashboard, the, the windscreen, the knob controls for the heater, probably a part of the steering wheel. And, and like I said, it's slightly, it's not level. It's like cocked a little bit. And the, and the two guys in that car sounded like they were trying to crawl under the seats. That's what it sounded like. I couldn't see them. And they're screaming back and forth to each other. It's over the top of us. It's over the top of us. Get down, get down, get down. And all of a sudden, like the inside of this car, and it was dusk. The inside of this car lights up like a Steven Spielberg movie with a light like source. And if this is the car, the light source is above it. And it's moving in a very fluid fashion. And the way I knew that is because the shadows on the inside of the car we're eerily moving around. You've never seen anything like it, okay? You've never seen shadows on the inside of a car moving in the way this was. Because the only way that could have happened is that if the light source was on a pendulum, very smooth, kind of doing this. And it wasn't, I wouldn't say it was directly back and forth. It was kind of more of a wobble, but smooth. No erratic jerkiness, smooth. Get down, get down. It's over the top of us. Get down. The light's lighting up on the dashboard. and then. You know, I'm giving you the short version. And then one of the, apparently the younger guy who was 19, he jumps out of the car. He, he says, I'm getting out of the car. And he grabs the camera and the guy's like, stay in the car, stay in the car. He didn't listen. He got out. And then he's rolling camera. And uh, you could see like the desert a little bit at first. I mean, it's not like pitch black. It was like dusk. And I would say maybe the height of a telephone pole, maybe a little higher was this perfect or yellow orange disc Carlos Diaz 
the closest thing I've ever seen to it is the Carlos Diaz photographs, you know, and it's like a disc and it looks like a pie. Sorry, I'm looking for something that's around me. It looks like a pie and it looks like, like, like somebody took a perfect knife and cut pieces out of the pie, but didn't remove the pie. And those seams were darker. Like there wasn't as much light emitting from those seams. So you kind of see them and it was just rocking. Like it was kind of just floating. You'd never, I've never seen anything like it ever before or since nothing. And it was just kind of rocking there. Kind of, kind of like this and uh, probably could have hit it with a rock probably. And, uh, and the cameraman goes, Oh my God, like that, you know? And then he, he might've said something about the battery or something, but then the camera shut off and that was it. I looked over at Chuck Clark and I was like, Holy bleep, where did you get this? And then I tried for 20 years to get it, 15, 20 years. And then he finally, he finally told me he didn't even have it anymore, which I didn't believe. But I found out about a year or two ago that he does still have it and he showed it to two people and it's pretty degraded at this point. The VHS tape is, it's been a v on VHS and the cameraman who shot it has just, sorry, the cameraman who was at a news station who made a VHS copy from the master has just died like last year or something mm -hmm. because if I could, if I could have gotten to him sooner, he would have been still alive, and I could have. He probably had. He he worked at a news organization in L.A., and I'm sure that he had a master on beta or something. Of course, we've contacted him and has tried to reach out to his son, whatever. But but Chuck Clark still has a copy. It's on VHS and it's pretty degraded. Now, you know, as you'd expect for I don't know what. Let's just say it was '94, '95. What was how many years? Twenty-seven years. Yeah, yeah. So twenty-seven years on a VHS tape. You know what I mean? And does Chuck not have an interest in $200,000? I, I wouldn't pay $200,000 for that de degraded tape at this point. No, Chuck doesn't have an interest in any amount of money. No. No. I offered him $35,000 from when I sold Out of the Blue to NBC Universal. And that's when he said he'll never talk to me again. And that was probably okay. like 2003 or something. I wonder, though, if he's showing, I mean, who would you surmise he's showing this to? You know, I if know he exactly sources... who he showed it to. Okay, and is it people that I'd be happy to hear he's shown it to, or is he just showing I it to random? Connect you with one of them gladly, sure. Yeah, yeah happily. Sure. I don't want to yeah. release his name here, but just send me an email, and I'll put you in touch with them. No, that's fine. Yeah. I might, might, I might already know them. I might not. Um, that'd be, but yeah, that'd be interesting to speak to because if someone like that has has a tape, and even as degraded as it might be now at this point. Mm -hmm. That's still something people would like to see. And I'd I'm sure see, I'd love to see it out. I'd love to see it out. I'd love to. I've been talking about it long enough and I don't care anymore. Like I just, I think I gave up caring about a couple of years ago. I was like, you know what? I don't care. Chuck, I don't know why Chuck. I said to Chuck, like, just put me in touch with the guys that shot it and let me talk to them. That's it. And he wouldn't do it. But I don't know why. Or maybe he tried and he wouldn't. He never told me he tried. He, he just wouldn't do it. Are they still alive? I have no idea. Interesting. I mean, I would imagine they would be. Apparently, one of the kids was, you know, 19, and the other guy was like 29, from okay. what I understand. Cool.
it's one of those really frustrating but fascinating things in, in the world of UFOs that I'm just like, if only I could see that, that would be that oh. would be good. Um, I saw it with these eyes, okay? Me, I saw it. I was, wow. I, I just remember thinking, that's why, that's why so many people are at a lack, they, they, they can't find the words in the English language to describe that magic, the way it floats, yeah. the way it wobbled and floated, you know, and it looked alive. Like the skin was just glowing alive, like phosphorus or something. Like it was just like a jellyfish or something, like alive. But it was a structured object. It wasn't just like a ball of light. Yeah. It was a disc. It, it was the best footage. Look, man, it's I've never seen anything like it since. That stuff that was released in the Pentagon looks like garbage compared to this. Yeah. That's 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 the interesting stuff, and I'm sure they've got some good stuff in the Pentagon as well still. Listen, James, thank you for sharing that. Let's get to some of these listener questions to wrap up because um, I had a lot of them sent in. Um, we'll fire through what we can. Uh, the question, first off, uh, from Newman. Uh, Newman sends in a lot of questions, and he asks, within the recent years, different explanations for the encounters with alien beings have been proposed. Ultra-terrestrial and extra-terrestrial models became very popular. Both state that encountered beings simply originate from our planet. From your research, is there any evidence to support that the being which was encountered in Virginia could have been anything from this Earth? Absolutely no idea. Do you have a gut feeling? I know you, you say you don't. I don't have a gut feeling. I just don't. I wish I did. I could ramble something off, but I just, I, I, I just have no idea. You know, and people are like, you're, you know, you're saying it's extraterrestrial. No, I'm not. I really don't know. I mean, they had a, spa they probably had a spacecraft that had a gash in the side of it, which leads me to think that they came from somewhere. You know, I mean, if there wasn't that link between the, the entities and the, and the crashed ship, the cigar shaped UFO, I might be more inclined to think that it was something maybe underground here in the United States, in, in the world. But there is that aspect of it. According to the eyewitness testimony, there was a craft that crashed. Um, but I just don't know. I, I, I wish I could tell your, your audience that I knew. I just don't. I don't have any. Like, I, I don't know. I'm sorry to be such a disappointment on that one. But I just I'm not a clue. No, it's a fair place to be in, and I, I'm happy to sit on the fence when I have to as well. You, yeah. I don't mind speculating, but like you say, in, in your role, like when that executive told you to provide a counter-argument for the you know, the, the aerial yeah. school stuff, you're like, well, there's no counter-argument to be made. They're, I'm presenting what they saw, so there's no yeah. point in trying to present something that isn't there. Yeah, and I wasn't there. I didn't see it. My opinion is irrelevant. I put... I put the, uh, the, the I put the witnesses, the first-hand witnesses in the movie, and I'm allowing the audience to draw their own conclusions. I have no conclusions. I don't know. I'd like to know. I'm very curious. I would follow up with that with Barry's. Right. Uh, Sorry, no, that's, <laughs> that's, that is absolutely fine. A uh, follow-up from Barry. He Everyone's asks, hating me right now. Well, I, I wonder, actually, Barry's question, I'm going to have to reword slightly because you're going to say I don't know. But he, Barry asks, were the creatures that escaped cargo or pilots, in your opinion? And if you don't want to share maybe your opinion or speculation, was there any sense from the community that these beings were piloting? Were they, were they cargo? It's funny you should say that because 
I might have cut this part out, but there was an interview I did with Stanton Friedman, bless his heart, love that guy. And he said that the evidence leaned in the direction of cargo as opposed to pilots. Why he said that was anyone's guess, but that's what Stanton Friedman said. On camera to me in Brazil. And for anyone who's not sure what we mean by cargo, uh, or just my dodgy pronunciation of the word cargo, uh, we're, we're talking about these beings. When your car goes as opposed yeah. to doesn't go, right? <laughs> yeah, essentially, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like those poor chaps that get caught by the UFO in Chuck Clark's footage with our car just would not go. Um, yeah. the, you're talking about these beings that were potentially maybe prisoners or basically, you know, being being carried from one place to another by something else who knows but there's always that possibility you just automatically assume beings on a craft were piloting it but that's an assumption there's no proof in any case that that's the case yeah i mean uh i've heard a brazilian researcher who said that he his theory was that they were biologically engineered uh to uh, perform certain tasks like a drone would. Uh, but again, I, I have no evidence of that. No, that's fair. That's that's quite a popular opinion, more, more so these days. Mm. Uh, question from Joe. Joe asks, what was John Mack's role in investigating the Virginia incident? Did he produce any research notes or other documentation that could be published? Unfortunately, none that I know of. It was interesting, too, because I was investigating the 1994 Ruiz Zimbabwe, uh, a landing case, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And within two weeks, Dr. John Mack of Harvard showed up with a camera crew uh, with the support of Lawrence Spellman Rockefeller at the time and uh, documented roughly 66 kids, although there were 100, I'm told, in the, in the, in the playground at the time, documented 66 kids on camera. Um, and I was in touch with Lawrence Spellman Rockefeller's daughter, and she said to me that she was rather disappointed that Dr. John Mack didn't really do ultimately anything with that those interviews. Now, I informed her that Dr. John Mack was deceased, that he was struck down, and she did not know that. Whether or not that would have been... And then, of course, when I'm in Virginia and I come across these taped interviews, which we include in the film, of Dr. John Mack, right after the incident happened, the girls, I mean, weeks, maybe a month, I don't know, but very recent, uh, documenting that. And I don't, not, as far as I know, I don't know of anything that was done with those either. Thanks. Uh, question from Tim. Tim asks, there is a quite recently released, or it would appear that way, video clip in Portuguese of a gentleman holding a file folder containing x-rays that bear resemblance to the event you're so heavily investigated. Have you seen these? And can you state if the man and his materials might be genuine? So the, the doctor that we spoke to, the x-ray technician, said that it was the first time in his career that he was unable to even verify that the photographs, the x-rays came out. So he never had his hands on those. So if those were released by an x-ray technician, I don't know who that would be. Thanks because for clearing. We, I just met with that x-ray technician yeah. last year, and he never even got to see them. Thanks for clearing that one up. Mm -hmm. um, question from Ryan Terry asks, has anyone reached out to you from the U.S. regarding what happened once the being was taken by the U.S. military? No, I'm waiting for that. But that's um, one that you want to get into the halls of oh, Congress and government to, to speak to some people. Dying to know. Dying to know.
where it went. In fact, I feel like, uh, you know, we'll, we'll go after it. Believe me, I'll go after it. Uh, James asks your namesake. James said in a previous podcast that, quote unquote, they walk among us. Can you elaborate more on this? And what do you think the implications of that are? James would never say something like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's James Inception now, starting to get a sore head. Uh, so I was quoting a meeting that I had with a guy. I didn't say I believed that or I didn't believe it, but I met with, with, with Bob Bigelow. Yeah, Robert who famously Bigelow. did say that on Australia, 60 Minutes, wasn't it? Yeah, I think he will. He was on 60 Minutes here in the United States. I don't know if he used the exact term, they're walking among us, but I think he might have said they're here. But in any case, um, that's what Robert Bigelow told me. I'm not saying, and I'm so funny because I, I was recounting that meeting I had with Rob, Robert Bigelow. I think it was like 2009, maybe 2010, but probably 2009. I could look up the dates. But in any case, he said that, the, you know, talked about the impact this story would have on humanity, on religion, on the economy uh, being quite significant. And then he said, you know, that they were walking among us. And, um, you know, I, I'm not saying I believe that at all. Um, is it possible? I'd be the first one to tell you that every time I've completely dismissed a case, uh, case in point, Rua, case in point, Virginia, uh, I've been wrong. And so, uh, you know, the jury's still out. I have seen zero evidence to support that theory, but I'm open to reviewing any evidence. I don't believe they're walking among us. That's what I heard from someone that would appear to be in a position to know. And final question, a bit more philosophical. A question from Timothy. Can James share personal insight on how better understanding the phenomenon has allowed better understanding of himself? It's quite humbling. It's quite humbling. I feel at times like um pretty insignificant not in a negative way but um i feel like i'm surrounded by this possibly this omnipresent intelligence that uh has the ability to kind of um uh nuts and bolts but also psychic uh it can manifest itself in, in so many different ways and shapes and forms. Um, it's kind of humbling. It's kind of humbling. It makes me feel like, you know, this universe is so huge and there's so much going on and we're just one tiny little piece of it. I feel kind of like a granule of sand. But, hey, I love the exploration. I love asking questions. I'm coming to terms at my age of 54 that I'm probably not going to get a lot of answers ultimately, other than clearly the phenomenon is real and it's global and that the world governments know it's real and that they're probably concerned about revealing what they know because it's going to open up a floodgate of questions, revealing their vulnerabilities and all the things that they don't know. Um, but I'm going to keep asking questions and keep digging. And, you know, uh, I enjoy very much what I do. It's humbling. <laughs> I think that comes across in your work. You enjoy what you do. And, and you've got a little boy that you have to leave for, for lengths or period at a time, don't you, to go and do that. And that must be very hard. And I can say that as a father. And I've got you on Facebook and I can see those interactions you have and how much that means to you. So it must mean a lot for you to take yourself away to do that, to then go back to, go back hearing, to your hearing, hearing my son when I'm abroad 
you know, running like scared for my life at times, not that often, but there have been a handful of times where I was pretty freaked out. Uh, hearing him tell me, daddy, how much I miss you. It's just, it's really difficult. Yeah. Really difficult. Like I'd probably still be in Virginia right now if I wasn't a dad, because we got so close when we were there, we were getting closer by the day, but we still have boots on the ground. I'm still very optimistic and new people that have been hiding for the last 18 plus years are coming forward uh, offering their their help, and I'm very confident that um, um, further details of this photographic evidence will be revealed in the very, very near future. Well, I look forward to that. And the coming days, this is going to go out on the 31st of October, uh, which we are due the unclassified UAP report by then from Congress, which I hear um, is likely to be delayed by a period of time which is unknown at the moment but it seems quite likely from what i'm hearing it's going to be delayed so fingers crossed that comes out asap we get the extra evidence that gets you some extra views and rents and buys of, of your product because moment of contact folks really does deserve your time and attention and also your money as well it's very easy these days to go and find free copies online but if you support creators like james it lets them do what they love and gets a great product out to you as well without the buffering and shankiness and hey, you know, I say to people, Hey, you know, I know some people, I look, if I was independently wealthy, I would just give it away for free. Believe me, I'm not in this for the money. I never have been I, until the phenomenon, I would have been made more flipping burgers. But, um, you know, if 12 years of research of somebody else's time and a handful of other researchers is worth six bucks or 20 bucks. Great. You know, uh, if you can afford it, if not, I, you know, we're, we're going to do everything that we can to provide this, uh, on on different streaming platforms that'll be made available for free. Um, you know, uh, also I was going to say, if you wouldn't mind, if anyone's uh, wouldn't, wouldn't mind taking the time to, to, to rate the film on Amazon or iTunes, uh, it's tremendously helpful for, for us. Yeah, please do that for James. That would mean a lot. And if you go out and buy this and we all buy it, then maybe he'll have the money to pay Chuck Clark for that videotape one day. And <laughs> I'm already I've already got a guy lined up to borrow the two hundred K and he said to me, You better you need I need a still frame of it to for absolute hundred percent confirmation. I said, I know that's in the, the caveat of when this thing goes down is that oh, that's that's for the virginia one yeah yeah yes. that's that's coming out we know that's we know you're going to get that one we want the chuck one as well though that's the double a side isn't it for for the older kids amongst us um james just before you go um yes. all the links to this for people to purchase moment of contact will be in the link for this uh, podcast it's a uh, genie.us forward slash moment of contact um and it'll be there for you to click on and purchase but just finally oh yeah do you want to make a point one thing I've, people get upset that i don't mention this because I, I keep forgetting but if you do buy it get it from itunes or vimeo because for the same price you get like two hours of bonus material i was going and to say bonus content yep yeah so it's itunes vimeo and they offer uh, all this extra content for no extra charge yeah so, so if you, you bought it. it on another platform what james is saying is go and buy it on itunes uh, oh, and vimeo as well and then right. you get the you get the extra <laughs> content on top of it um, and james people will kill me if i don't ask when is the phenomenon 2 coming out uh, well, I don't think I'd call it the phenomenon too, but uh, uh, we're starting production on a new film uh, next week. Am I crazy? I must be nuts. Absolutely crazy, yeah, because I felt bad asking that question, um, just given that you're literally in the, the wake of releasing uh, your first one, but I don't so much now because you're already going into production on something else. Any clues to what that's going to be on yet? 
Uh, I'm going after the evidence. After the evidence. Cool. I like it. Going after well, the evidence. I look Ask forward to that. Questions. Yeah. Look forward to that coming out, James. As always, you've been very good with your time, so I'll let you get back to what you're doing. And we look forward to speaking to you again. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. That is all for this week's show. Thank you very much for listening. Please remember to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform. You can like, retweet and subscribe. That would all be very much appreciated. The shows are being uploaded onto YouTube as we speak more and more. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash that UFO podcast to access shows ad free as well. Please get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, that UFO podcast. Of course, on Twitter, it's at UFO, U-A-P-A-M. And again, folks, as always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see. It wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer, a little Baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of Folk. The little fucker hovered right outside of my window, and when I shoved out the screen, he made it an issue. I don't think he expected me to see his ass, but I'd had some champagne and smoked a little red. Meditative game of fate full on meta. I can't imagine how it could have been any better. I got to the top of the stairs and there he was. Like, you awake? I was about to abduct you, cuz.
podcast is powered by Zencaster. Zencaster is one of the world's leading platforms for recording and hosting podcasts. The open beta strives to put the power of studio quality remote video production into the hands of anyone with a story to tell. Features include HD video recording, studio quality sound, chat and footnotes. All running right from your browser so you can record from anywhere without ever installing anything. Check out the links in the show description to find out more.